This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, the best independent sports podcast on the planet, is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. Panko Chicken is the home of the best Japanese American chicken tender, and it continues to rack up the awards in Atlanta, winning the 2019 Super Bowl Live Top Sling Vendor Award, multiple best selling tastes at the Taste of Atlanta Awards in 2017 and 2018, and even the best fried chicken award at the 2018 ATL Fest. Panko is all about connecting cultures, cultivating happiness, one chicken tender at a time. I love Panko, their family, and I can't thank them enough for their support of this podcast. It it just, it means a lot. And um, yeah, so go to their Midtown location, their Tucker location, and all their future locations as they take over Atlanta because they're family and I love them and I couldn't be more excited to see more and more locations pop up and all of that um that goes with it so go to go to panko get some chicken get some rice get some beer there's all kinds of great stuff um whatever you want panko chicken has it so go do that um also go to chase thomas podcast.com i am uh i'm writing my ass off there uh these days so go do that read my stuff you can get access to all of my previous episodes you can buy my merch you can learn more about just why I do what I do and why I believe I'm going to get where I want to go. Um, this is my dream, this, uh, this sports media thing. And um, you were going to see me on ESPN one day or Sports Illustrated or Fox Sports or DAZN or whoever um, because I'm not going to quit. I am, I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep grinding. I'm going to keep punching out episodes, writing articles, and just outworking everyone because I just I just want this more and I believe my product and I believe in where I'm going. Um we're over three hundred episodes strong and this is what I want. Uh there will be no slowing down. Took a break, but this is uh this is my jam and this is what I want. This is my passion. And uh yeah, so leave a rating. Leave a review on iTunes. It means a lot. Share my articles on Twitter, Facebook, wherever. Um, and join me as I keep climbing the ladder and all of that because I I just I need your support. So if you like the podcast, keep listening, keep subscribing, tell tell your friends, keep sharing it out, keep reading my work. And uh yeah, so okay. All right. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. 
All right, welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Trevor Sykema of the Draft Network of Pewter Report is here. It's been a little bit. Trevor, good evening. How are you? Dude, I'm like a, I'm like a, I've got like a membership card to this podcast. This mm. this is like my third time on it, right? I think this is only my third, something like third, fourth, something like that. You're just giving yourself passes, titles. I need, I, I, what I'm saying is I need some kind of rewards program. Mm. You know, if we're going to keep doing this, if I'm going to keep making this my go-to podcast. I'm going to need, some, oh, uh, you know, like okay. I'm need like a cash back thing or something, you know, at least some special promos. Well, I mean, I think you being on this podcast is is more than enough. I mean, just shout out to Jovan Pua, who I was saying for just it's been years now because of how long we've been doing this, that he was just going to be a star and going to get too big for the podcast. And now he's Mr. Athletic NBA. Wow. So look I, I can I mean, I can only suggest that I played a somewhat or entirely important pivotal role to to his rise. You know, as long as I'm and you company. Too of a of a good alumni club then maybe that could uh maybe that could hold the keys for me as well so we'll see what's the hair situation like for you these days uh we're growing it out again uh, okay now we're actually i'm growing out the sides of it too i'm almost going like full like growing the whole hair out you mm. know because before it was just the top you know it was like the man bun look and right. I ended up shaving my head because the buccaneers do a really cool event during the summer called cut for a cure which is where like players and people within the Buccaneers organization and, and well, I guess media as well. Cause I get involved in it, uh, mm. does the, the whole kind of donating your hair thing and, and raising money and awareness awareness to uh, pediatric cancer. And so players kind of got me involved with it last year and it was one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of. So I ended up that my hair was as long as it's ever been. It was like past my shoulders. And I ended up shaving my whole head and we're kind of just in the process. Now that was about a year later. Flow's coming back. Flow is coming back. I'm proud to say, but uh, okay. you know, so you haven't had a haircut in a year. <laughs> basically, man, I'm like, I'm like barely trimming it. I'm like scared to lose it again. So yeah, we're uh, we're getting we're getting somewhere near you know Thor three and Thor two status with the hair. So we're probably so in between you're yourself a Thor comparison too. Yeah. Just your ego is already out of control. What I can't wait is for peak mm. fat. Thor end game mode that's the final form that's the ultimate goal for me there you know so this is where i tell you i haven't seen end game oh my goodness all right well thor gets fat in end game there you go sorry really okay yeah, yeah. i'm not a big avengers and all that kind of uh, we don't have to rehash this but it's one of my most controversial takes is that I, I don't i don't get the the hype surrounding these multi-character universe movies i just i don't think they're very good I'm not even upset. I'm just disappointed. Okay. Spider-Man 2. I'm like today the news so that uh, Spider-Man is going back to Sony. Yes. Yes. I love that. I hate it. Spider-Man 2. The best Spider-Man movie. Oh, Give me that again. No. Not even close. Chase. You can't do this to me, man. You know what's good is Batman being by himself in the Christopher Nolan universe, uh-huh. Spider-Man in his own universe. Like that's just those are better movies. You can make it more realistic, more gothic, more mm-hmm. um mm. more realistic. There's just it's it's more grounded. I, en- the, I enjoyed the different the the different Spider-Man look mm-hmm. with this new one. But I know a lot yeah, of people yeah. like the old stuff too. So, yeah. I guess I can't. I'm, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. Um, but we are not going to be talking about Spider-Man on this podcast unless there is a player in Bucks camp nicknamed Spider-Man. Is there anyone? Could it be Scotty Miller? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Scotty, 
Scotty, Scotty actually just got back on the field, man. Like he's right. been, he's been hurt for a little bit. So, uh, he better be thankful that he's at least able to able to practice because he wasn't a shoe in to make this roster before he got back out on the field. But he's getting the Tampa Bay Times piece profiles. Like he's gotten a lot of hype. I I have him in my notes tonight, and I just it's a great name where you could just see. Like I mean, I, I guess everybody, every Bucks fan is just like, "Hey, penciling him in for Adam Humphreys 2.0. That's the like, thing. That's the thing yeah. with with Scotty Miller is that so many people are writing stories about him because they just think it's this one and one. Adam mm. Humphreys replacement, and let me tell you, it <laughs> it's not <laughs> okay. It's not. So it's like Jeff Janis, really. Yeah, I mean, people gotta realize that. Yeah, I guess Adam Humphreys certainly wasn't the most physically gifted dude in the world, whether it was with speed or strength or size or whatever. But Humphreys was such a tactician, and he was so consistent at what he did from the slot. There's a reason the Titans paid him eight mil a year. He's one of the best in the NFL at what he does for that role. You can't just draft the rookie and expect him to be what Humphreys was. You know, like Humphreys was basically a glorified what would be a walk on with the Mm. Buccaneers for like three years before he even stuck on the roster. And then obviously had a really great year last year as well. So, um, yeah, that's everybody's looking for Scotty Miller to be the Adam Humphreys replacement because it would be an easy narrative and it would allow them to write their stories better focus on things that they already know but i'm just saying that's not quite the case you guys might have to do a little bit more research than that well anytime you have the opportunity to join up with ryan Tannehill and marcus Mariota, um you gotta you got do it, it. of course oh, as as i have often said as well yeah. yes i can't believe that's a real qb battle like that's happening like marcus Mariota might not start week one that's a that's a thing i don't really think you know i i read that and there's a lot of I've been through the whole gauntlet of debates with mm. James Winston and, and Marcus Mariota. You know, that's something that's that's going to be carried. Are they linked? Tell me for, more. For uh, as <laughs> long as they are going to be. In the league. <laughs> and it's so funny because back in 2015, when the Buccaneers had that number one overall pick, it was like Marcus Mariota, James Winston. You can't go wrong. Yes, you might have a guy that you prefer a little bit better. And the Bucs did in James Winston. That's why they ended up picking him. But the whole narrative was, oh, you can't go wrong with either of these guys. These guys are going to be all pro. They're going to be franchise quarterbacks. Here both of them are in their fifth year of their rookie deal. Neither of them have long-term deals yet. And both of them are playing on situations where it's like, okay, you better show us that you're better than you've ever been before or we're not going to sign you, which is crazy to believe. I did not think that was going to be the case five years down the line. Ultimately, I say all that to say that like, Marcus Mariota is going to start. There's no way they don't start Marcus Mariota, but it is pretty crazy that this is even being entertained. Like, why would you sign Ryan Tannehill if you really didn't think? I mean, he's going to play anyway. It's not like Mariota is going to play 16 games. Well, that's right? that's yeah. Why <laughs> sign him? Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel bad for Mariota because he seems like a really easy guy to root for. He's just, I don't know. He's just not good. He hasn't. He's not he, great. He hasn't been the quarterback that I think everybody's wanted him to be. And when I watched. When I watch, well, you know what's helped is they've had like 19 offensive coordinators and yeah. some changes since he's been there. Certainly, that doesn't help. Mark Mariota's sophomore year at Oregon, I was in love with this dude. I was like, this mm. is the prospect, man. He doesn't miss a single throw. He is laser accurate. He can throw it all over the yard. Like he can run. He can play read option. This guy is where it's at. And then his junior year wasn't as good, but you still have that sophomore tape. So you're like, okay. That's the guy that I still believe in. That's the guy that I think I'm drafting. 
there have been moments where Mariota's looked good in the NFL. Like there have been times when he's been very accurate. He's been efficient. He's been a guy who can consistently move the ball. Most of the time, he doesn't make mistakes. That's what people love about him. But in terms of taking that next level, that next step, I mean, like, I think everybody's fooling themselves if they think that Marriott has done that already because he hasn't. I think that he is still a very cautious quarterback, so much so that he does a lot of things where you're not even seeing enough risk evasion to to win football games. And that's the big thing. You have to get quarterbacks who are not afraid to throw the football in areas where you're taking risks. And the good ones are on the lucky end of the coin more often than they're not. But you don't even know if you don't take that shot. And I'm waiting for Marcus Mariota to become that guy where sure he's consistent underneath. He's like Drew Brees underneath with his completion percentage and things like that. But I mean, you gotta be, you gotta be a guy who pushes it down the field. I don't see that from Mariota. And I wonder too, if Mitch Trubisky is going to be able to throw left. seems like that might be an important thing for him in his progression as an NFL quarterback. Like directional thing is really weird with quarterbacks because I, did you watch that tape by the way? Yes, yes. Packers Twitter is vicious, but I also very much enjoy it because it cracked me up and just watching it over and over again. I watched that on loop at least three or four times. It's funny because like I one two years ago, Jameis Winston really struggled throwing the ball to his left. And I remember this. Yeah. I wrote a column about it and I was like, Jameis just can't throw to his left. They gotta do things more with his shoulder square, keep it in the middle of the field, right in the field. This is who Jameis is. Like I thought I cracked the Da Vinci code of Jameis Winston. Like just I don't thought, throw left. <laughs> I thought that like I was on the forefront of explaining why this guy wasn't what he was. And then he goes out like the next year and he like dominates to his left and sucks to his right. And I'm like, okay, then I don't, <laughs> this is, I don't know what happened here. So it was like, I don't think anybody knows what the direction, the directional thing is, is often way more hit and miss than we, uh, than we want it to be. However, I say that knowing full well, I will at some point soon write another article about directional throwing in quarterbacks and act like it's biblical. So sounds like a threat. Here we are. Um, so what's different about Bucks camp in 2019? I mean, Bruce Arians, everything that he has brought to the table, it's, it's, I don't want to say night and day different than what it was with Dirk Cutter, but things are certainly different. Uh, Dirk Cutter was a first time head coach. He was a long time NFL coach, but he was a first time head coach. And I think that went into a lot of the processes that he had throughout the free agent or throughout the training camp period. Excuse me. Bruce Arians has been through this a lot including as a head coach. And so for him to come in with the coaching staff that he has now, very experienced coaching staff, top to bottom, it's that part is different. How they go about things, the padded practices, how they're taking guys to the ground, how physical they're being, how they run goal line drills, their philosophy for preseason games where they're actually trying to win games. Yeah, they're not trying to go... They're not going balls to the wall, and they're not like selling out for preseason wins, but they want to win the game. They want to win the football game, and that's what he said. He was kind of like, you know, people, I, I can't remember which media member said this to him before the first preseason game, but they're like, hey, what's your, you know, what's your goal for this weekend? And he looked at him, he's smiling, he's like, win. And we all kind of laughed a little bit, but I mean, serious, in, in a way, he's trying to instill within these guys that every time they step on the football field, they're expected to win the game. They should Think that they're going to win the game. Winning should be in their blood. And my Lord, was that not the case or the lesson when Dirk Cutter was here? Not to say that. <laughs> Great news for Falcons fans. Not, well, not yet. You know, not to say that he was like teaching them to lose or something. 
Mm-hmm. But you could just tell that he hadn't done it before. This winning nature, setting up a winning culture and a winning mindset, he didn't think that he was going to have to do that. He thought that that was just going to be accepted. That like all these guys just want to win. Like they, they want to sell out and win and no matter They're what. Pros, yeah. That's not the case, man. You have to have a culture set up where these guys are truly bought in. And it's the best NFL teams in the dynasties around the league, that's what they have. So I'm not saying that. I say all that to not call the Bucks a dynasty or anything, but that's the big difference, I think, for me. Bruce has brought a much different mindset with this coaching staff and with him at the top to what to expect of this team and how they're going to get it done. And that, that's shown up in their physicality, the plays that they run, uh, how they're making life difficult on the offensive line, like just showing no mercy when, when the defense is picking up stuff quicker than the offense, never letting up making it hard on them, making sure that they know what it's like, what everything's going to be thrown at them. So hopefully that when the live bullets start flying, if you will, in week one, that they're ready for it. Do you expect this team to throw for the most yards again in football? I don't. And and I don't because... You love Peyton Barber. Well, (laughs) there's going to be a little bit of a split with the running backs between Peyton Barber and Ronald Jones. I think that's going to be more of a debate this year. Um, And then I also... Certainly, though Deshaun Jackson wasn't exactly what you wanted him to be in Tampa Bay, if from a one-in-one production standpoint. He was good, though. He brought something to the offense that you always had to monitor. Mm-hmm. That left Chris Godwin more open. That left Mike Evans more open. That left O.J. Howard and Cameron Brait more open. Now, Godwin, Evans, Howard, and Brait, they're all still there. And that's a very good core four of receivers from both tight end wide receivers. But Adam Humphreys isn't there, and Deshaun Jackson isn't there, and I think that those are going to play major roles in continued drives and really almost the yardage, really, to the question that you were asking there. I think they'll be more efficient in the red zone. I think they'll be more efficient with scoring because I think the play calling and the execution is going to be better. But I don't necessarily that think that that means their yardage total is still going to be like top five, top three in the league. I think they're going to be a good offense. I think the Buccaneers are... You know, everything kind of weighs in on the offensive line. But as long as the offensive line can hold up, they're going to chuck the football. I mean, Bruce Arians, whether he's calling plays or not, which he's not, Byron Leftwich is calling I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we can get into that, too. That was a that was a big point of discussion, I think is a good way to say it, when Arians was hired. Because it was like, Arians agreed to come to Tampa Bay. Jason Light is his buddy, so it's there. It's his chief. So they had a previous relationship. They were together in Arizona. Yes. Mm-hmm. So okay. that is how they knew each other very well. And the only reason Arians even came out of retirement to coach the Buccaneers is because not the only reason, but the main reason is because Jason Light's the GM, and because he had some familiarity. He wasn't working with a guy he wasn't sure if their chemistry was going to go together. He knew that it was going to work with Jason Light. But it was funny because once it was like agreed upon that like, all right, Bruce is in. He's going to be our coach. It's like, yeah, all right, cool. And then he told the Glazers and the owners, he was like, I'm not calling plays, by the way. And the Glazers, the owners were like, um, what? Because that was our biggest problem last year was that we didn't have a good functional play caller. And we thought we were hiring you because you've been a play caller for the last 20 years. And Arian said, nope, not calling plays. It's too stressful on me. I can't handle it. My body can't handle it. That's why I had to leave the game the first time. I'm not calling plays. I'm going to get Byron Leftwich to call plays. And he really had to sell 
ownership. Wait, was this after he was hired or before? I, I wouldn't say that it was after. I don't think it was like after the ink dried or anything like that. But okay. I, I think from from thing I pulled, <laughs> so it wasn't like oh by the way Byron's cosplay. Yeah, I'll well, see y'all this fall. <laughs> I don't think it's like that, but. I will say that that I do think that it probably came in the order of operations of, yes, I'll come coach the Buccaneers. And then there was a big like, yeah, he's coming back. He's going to coach our team. And then he goes, by the way, I'm not calling plays. And they go, whoa, 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 excuse me? So I think that there were some details to iron out with that. And Bruce himself even says that was a uh, heated conversation that he had to have with ownership because ownership almost didn't even sign off on it because they wanted him to be the play caller. So you know he's downplaying. If he was, if he used that kind of verbiage to describe it, there was a lot of "what the fuck" going on. <laughs> like, are you kidding? Like, the, you know that happened, and it was significantly worse than he's letting on. Yeah. No, I think that this was. I think that was a a point. It was a lot closer to potentially this marriage not happening than people think. Now it ended up happening. Interesting. Nobody freaks out about it. But you know, here's the thing, man. Leverage, what he nailed it in Arizona last year. It was good in Arizona, no question about it. But obviously, small sample size, right? I mean, kind of, this is a little bit different. You're going to a different team. I know you got Bruce under you now, but anytime. Joking, by the way, this, this was not good. They had like the top, the, the bottom twenty offensive DVOA of all time. No, 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 no. But I think left, which was fine. No, like I really okay. do. That offensive line was the worst offensive line. Yeah, one of the worst offensive lines I've ever wow, seen. Wow, no love for Andre Smith. Oh. And uh, Justin Pugh, Sweet. and the rookie center. Mother and, uh, God, no. So I actually think that, because I, I went back and I watched some Arizona film, and I actually like some of the plays and situations that left, which dialed up. So I thought that he was actually pretty good as a play caller Okay, just with Arizona. But anytime you change scenery, it's never a one-in-one one transition, right? And so what happens if the Buccaneers start, let's say, one-in-four, and the offense isn't going the way that it is? Is Bruce going to take over play calling? Is ownership going to be like, hey, you better take over play calling? Because he yeah. said, he has said firmly, I'm not calling plays. So it's just an interesting dynamic that could come up here if that's not going to be the case. But roping that a little bit back into the offense, I think that they have a strong offensive cast, but I don't think it's going to be the same as what we've seen from the Buccaneers over the last two years. Because, and I also think the defense is going to be a little bit better. And under Dirk Cutter and Mike Smith, Holy mother of God, was the defense awful? And if Jameis didn't... Worst in football in back-to-back years. No question about it. Uh, Mike Smith, the the worst defensive coordinator in football for two straight seasons. And he was also, fun fact, the highest paid one. So, truly, truly... <laughs> That's hustling forward, have sir. ...have to respect the hustle. But I don't think... James Absolutely. ...be throwing his arm out as much. So I do mm-hmm. think, in what I was saying before, I think the Buccaneers are going to be a top 10 offense not sure it's this top five lock that i think you could have said that it was with the cast that they had last year yeah and it's just hard there's so many good offenses it's a lot easier to like talk yourself into a team adjusting and getting back like the vikings getting back in top five in defensive dvoa like it's easier to talk yourself into a team that had like a a weird down year um defensively the previous year but they did made some personnel changes whatever and they adjusted and now they can easily get back into that group like Vic Fangio and Denver getting that group into a top five standing and seeing the Bears fall out like it's a lot easier to see that bouncing around but offense I don't know there's just too many elite offenses where I'm like uh we'll have to see I I I, we'll have to see it um you know what's interesting I was doing like just different deep dives into the Bucks numbers last year and like they're really they had awful starting field position. Why? 
They had awful starting field position. Um, Thirtieth in the NFL. I mean, I would assume because one, they had absolutely nothing from the kick return spot. Uh, mm. They fair caught absolutely everything because Derek Cutter didn't really want to take any chances on punt return. And I've got mm. to think that a reason for that is because the Buccaneers' defense was so bad that it would bend until the point where you could finally force a punt when the other team's at midfield and you're getting pinned inside like the 10 every time. So I think that that's Interesting. probably the combination of what got us there. Are you seeing anything different with Jameis this summer? Um, I mean, if I... Jameis nervous. Can you tell he knows this is a make or break year? For I him? I really don't think he's nervous. I I don't I don't okay. I don't sense any kind of I mean, nerves nervous, but like he knows him. that like this is year five, man. I think everybody kind of knows that it's year five, and he I mean, there's no way that he wouldn't be thinking about that. It's obviously something that weighs heavily on his mind because if he balls out, he might very well become the richest man in football. Right? That's just how quarterback contracts yeah. tend to go. So. That's also a big deal of, hey, this guy's got to really prove himself if we're about to sign him to a quarterback contract. And so I mm-hmm. think he knows what's at stake. But Jameis has never, you know, for his faults as he's had in other areas, like he's never been a guy who lets like what I would say money situations get in the way of what he wants. Like the dude legitimately only cares about winning now. Sometimes he does very boneheaded things even on the field where he gets in the way of his own wins. But he's the whole like he's a competitor, like he's one of the most competitive people I've ever met. That cliche is not false. He is. He's like he's crazy competitive. And I really, truly think that he just cares about winning. Now, playing quarterback in the NFL, you make a pretty damn good living, too, if you're pretty good at it. And so that's a Mm -hmm. factor that comes into it. But I don't really think there's this added pressure that, hey, like this is the final year. I think this is the same amount of pressure that he's been under the last couple of years. He just wants to win. He's tired of losing. He hates it. So new coaching staff, new hope there. We'll see if it comes to more. He's familiar with him, right? Like he like Arians met him when he was in high school, I want to say. And like at his son's uh, Birmingham high school camp. And yeah. yeah. He, right. He, well, I, I can't remember exactly where it is, but he had met Jameis a long time ago and he has been mm. following Jameis throughout his collegiate and NFL career ever since. So, yes, he has been well. They, they have known each other for a long time, obviously never been coached by him or anything like that. But, yeah, they're very familiar with each other. So I assume getting Jameis to buy into Arians was not a difficult task. So the offensive line, Tampa, they moved right guard. Caleb, how do we say this? Beninock. Beninock. To right tackle. Yes. Um, to back up DeMar Dotson. Year 11 for him. Yes, they did. The right side of the offensive line scares me. Does it scare you? Uh, it could very well because there has been a revolving door at right guard for two years now. It was Beninock. It was um, Evan Smith. It was Kevin Panfield at one point. Two of those guys aren't even on a roster anymore. Well, they're not on the Bucks roster anymore. And the other one's a backup at a different position. They throw in second-year guy Alex Kappa in there for training camp. And I got to say, man, he's not blowing it. And that's the best okay. compliment that I could give a right guard for the Buccaneers in nearly two years. He's been fine. And he's actually been running pretty dang well with the first team. And so you hope that that, uh, if you're a Buccaneers fan, you're hoping that that holds up pretty well because that was a major problem over the last couple of years. But DeMar Dotson... I think he's a good offensive lineman, but how much longer can he do this? You know, like he is old. 
Like, I think he's, what is he, 33, 34 or something? He's been playing this game for the Buccaneers for a long time. And big men just don't last that long. And his body's kind of started to break down on him. And so you wonder, man, if Doc goes down, which is probably a likely given his age and his injury history, you're throwing Caleb Beninock in there at, at right tackle. And at that point, Caleb Beninock and Alex Kappa looks a lot less promising than DeMar Dotson who has been a really solid offensive lineman throughout his career and Alex Kappa. So that is there a Khalil they can sign. <laughs> yeah. Somebody phone up mama Khalil. See if she's got any more kids lying around, something like that. <laughs> like you, you can need him. Um, how is Devin white looking? Devin white's good. He's going to be the coverage parts going to be the big thing that he's going to have to develop this season, uh, but run fits and stopping the run, getting tackles for loss. That's something that he's going to be able to do right away. He's going to be able to do that all season this year. That's not going to be a problem for him. He's so instinctual with where the ball is going when it's on the ground or when it's in the short game or in the backfield, he's already picking up that very well. And with Levante David out over the last couple of weeks, he was, he had, he had minor, minor surgery on his knee. I'm not sure if he'll be there for week one, but you know, Devin White's been running with the first team, calling out sets, you know, wearing the communication helmet. So he's been taxed with a lot of stuff, but he's performing pretty well. Coverage is the big area where he still needs work, and that's likely just going to be an entire rookie year thing. It's 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 so rare for rookie linebackers, especially middle linebackers, to pick that up well enough to be highly regarded in their first year. But in terms of making tackles, being around the ball, having some energy, getting tackles for loss, I think that'll come in year one. The secondary, I think, is the most interesting thing about this defense because they're switching schemes. They're going to more coverage, more single coverage, more tight press, that kind of stuff. Hargraves has played like two games in 43 years. Um, there's a lot of pressure on these corners. And they they drafted some defensive backs, um, the, the kid out of Kentucky and the kid out of Central Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's maybe the biggest question. Maybe Vita Vea because he was good at the end of last season. So when he's healthy, yeah. like he could finally be a player. You have the Domkinsue. You have the who you wrote about, the now outlier in Jason Pierre-Paul in his new position. Yeah. Um, those are all interesting elements, but I feel like it's really just going to come down to what that coverage group looks like <laughs> and who stays in the field, right? Like when you play in the NFC South and you have – julio jones mike thomas and this group in this division and really just the nfc as a whole just being um just uh, aaron Rodgers, carson wentz who you name it like this is just really tough to survive when you have a secondary that's banged up and just not very talented um what do you see right now and, and what do you think happens with hargraves in this group yeah so i think defense is is the area where everybody's looking for the most improvement seeing as how they were absolutely got off of the last two years so you can only go up when you, yep, you know, there you go. Uh, start off with some existential dread before the podcast, but here we are on a positive swing. Love it, Chase. Um, Absolutely. 29th is in reach, sir. So when I look at this depth chart, when I look at this roster, if everyone who is on this team is healthy, they can get by. This defense okay. can be fine. Dominic and Sue paired up with Vita Vea, the versatility there. Carl Nassib had a much better year last year with the Buccaneers than he ever had in Cleveland. He can actually be a piece that's useful. You've got guys like Shaq Barrett, Noah Spence, hopefully had given you some speed rush on the outside. Will Golston's playing much better as an interior player than he was as an edge player. You have Levante David and Devin White in the middle. And then the secondary, though they're inexperienced, they've shown that they can make some plays on the ball throughout training camp. But that's if everybody's healthy. If, if 
Vita Vea right now, his knee is is sidelined him. Don't know if he's going to be there for week one. Same thing with Levante David. You start taking good players off of this defense, especially in that front seven, oh boy, it might be ugly for the secondary. Because where I think that they are good players, they're all so inexperienced. Amongst the cornerback group right now, there are two career interceptions amongst all of their cornerbacks. Hargraves had one in 2016. Ryan Smith had one last year. Ryan Smith is just sitting out the first four games for a PED suspension. So you look at Hargrave starting on the outside, who has looked better than he ever has as a Buccaneer, by the way. So there is some hope there. Carlton Davis, who had a problem getting takeaways in college, still hasn't gotten a takeaway yet in the NFL. Then at nickel, you've got uh, MJ Stewart, who got absolutely cooked by really good slot players last year. He's looked better in camp, but he's been a little bit more physical in camp, still worried how he's going to do when he goes up against more athletic slot players. And then a rookie in Sean Murphy Bunting. You don't even really know whether he's going to be an inside or outside guy, something like that. And then in secondary, Justin Evans has been hurt. His status for week one is up in the air. So do you play the rookie Mike Edwards out of Kentucky right away? You run him with Jordan Whitehead? There's a lot of questions. I like the philosophy. I agree with you. I like the philosophy change for this Buck secondary. But if they don't have enough pressure generated up front, this is a young group. And I'm afraid that it's going to that inexperience is going to bite them because I, I like I like the talent that they that they are building in the secondary, but is certainly not all there yet, or at least they have not proven themselves quite yet. How are you coping with Miko Grimes not being around this year? Oh, it's a lot less fun. A lot less fun. Anytime Brent did something or another, Miko was able to to talk about it. I loved Miko though. Miko was so entertaining for me. I never, <laughs> I never once interacted with Miko because I was not going to dare getting blocked. That was my entertainment. Okay. <laughs> I got mad respect for Miko. <laughs> she's she's keeping my NFL life much more entertaining. But yeah, it's a bummer. Bummer that uh, Brent's. Well, it's. I mean, it's not a bummer that Brent's not on the team. He was his effort and uh, execution was absolutely pitiful towards the end of last year. So he's also like seventy three years old. Oh, he I know. Was a good Falcon. Oh, forever of ago. Yes, and he no, he was a good Buccaneer too in those early years. But Mike Smith was so god awful at coordinator, and Brent knew it. Like part part. Yes, I think that Brent could have given a lot better effort for the team. I really do believe that. But I also 100% believe that Brent saw the situation with the Buccaneers and with Mike Smith as their coordinator. And he went, why am I why am I going to care for y'all? Truly, you guys suck. This is not going to work. And he knew it immediately. And you could kind of tell. And he checked out as soon as he could. So should the effort have been better? Yes. Can I hold like 100% blame him? No, I really can't because the coaches were that bad. Okay, that's fair. Trevor, I think we covered everything. Give me a give me a prediction for the season. What do you think they do? Do they do the full Bucksian thing and go six and ten or five and eleven, or do they actually finally become the team that people have been predicting them to be the last like six years? The interesting part about this for Tampa is that their schedule is so unprecedentedly bad. I've never seen anything like it. Okay. Here's here's their schedule. Are you ready for it? Have you ever looked at the Bucks schedule? Do you know anybody? I have looked at it, but I remember there was something weird. I just don't have it in front of me yeah, right now. I'm putting, pull it up. I don't, have, something weird. I don't have it in front of me either, but I think I've rattled it off so many times because <laughs> that I think I can do it again. Week one, they start at home, okay? They start at home against the San Francisco 49ers. Correct. Four days now. later, they play a Thursday night game for quote-unquote week two in Carolina, a divisional opponent, Okay. 
Fast forward to the London game that they play in October. Guess who their opponent is? Oh, Carolina. So they took a home division game away from the Buccaneers, which is absolute bullshit that it's right. a division game. And not only that, it's a division game. It's it's the mirror of the one that you already screwed them over by sending them to Carolina in week two. Okay, fast forward or go back a little bit further to that. There is a 49-day stretch where they do not play a single game in Raymond James Stadium at home. 49 days, seven weeks of the season where they do not play a single home game. On top of that, they also travel over 20,000 miles. They travel to L.A. to play the Rams in the Coliseum. They travel to Seattle to play the Seahawks. They travel to Nashville. Obviously, they travel to Carolina, Atlanta, and New Orleans as well for the divisional games. It is crazy. And and to, you would think that if they got so screwed in the middle of that schedule that they would at least have like, I don't know, their last four games at home. No, they never even do anything more than double up. They might have back-to-back home games, but so what? Every team in the NFL has plenty of back-to-back home games. The, their schedule, Chase, is the worst schedule I've ever seen. And actually, the NFL schedule maker came out, and they're like, oh, if you had to you know, redo a couple of things, would you want to redo anything? And he, he, he said, yeah, if we could have a redo at that Tampa one, I'd like to take a different crack at that. Yeah, you damn right you would, because this thing's awful. So all of that to say. 12 and 4? Of course. Uh, 13. <laughs> yeah, actually, you were selling them. You were selling them short. I think the Bruce Arians presence is going to mean a lot. I really do. I think that they went 5-11 and 11 with Dirk Cutter being kind of incompetent in certain head coaching situations and also failing to close out games that they were even close. I think Bruce will at least get you a little bit more than that. I'm going to say that with the schedule, I'm going to say 7-9 and nine for them this year. And I think that they're building in the right direction, but... I just don't know how it could get much better. If, if they go better than seven and nine, man, then hat is off to this whole coaching staff for what they've done. But I think we're probably looking at a six and 10, seven and nine season. And if they, like I said, if they do better than that, I am all in on believing that Bruce Arians is one of the best coaches that we've seen in the last couple of decades. Well, if they do that, we know that uh, James Winston is probably going to be the, the highest yep. paid That's- quarterback in football next year. I God. What a time. All right, Trevor, what can we check out from you this week on the Draft Network or Peter Report? Sure. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing stuff for both every single day. Uh, Draft Network guys, we're pumping out all kinds of college and NFL content for you 365 days a year. That staff over there, we are already so embedded in these prospects, man. I think that I've looked at nearly 100 of them myself. We've already got, oh, what's the number up to? Almost nearly 250 players with full preseason scouting reports already up on the site. So if you're a draft nut, we're doing that. Um, we're doing that all the time. And then obviously a Peter report, anytime you listeners out there need some bucks coverage, maybe want a few laughs with it. Try to keep it light on twitter.com as well. Head over to Peter Porter. Follow me on Twitter at Tampa Bay Trey. Okay. Do that. Trevor, always a pleasure. See you in a couple of years. Of course, man. <laughs> All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast on the line right now. Old friend, John Taylor of Sports Illustrated. John, good evening. How are you? Uh, I am doing all right. How about yourself? 
I'm I'm good. I I didn't know if you were going to go immediately into well, I'm doing better than the Red Sox, but I'm glad I'm that I'm that should go without saying because I have all of my limbs and they're all functioning properly. So mm-hmm. by by that bar, by any bar, I'm, I'm I'm doing way better than the Red Sox. It's um, it's interesting because like the whole stuff going into the trade deadline, where I I read a lot of different stuff and just thinking about the way this roster is constructed and the type of season that they're having and that they're in win now mode, they're coming off a World Series win that like. What do you do if you're the Red Sox? Because I think people made it seem like it was a little bit less complicated than it was at the time. Because you can, you don't have to do a full teardown um, every time. Like we just, we always think that it's all full measures, but you could do a half measure. Where like, I thought the idea of trading JD Martinez was interesting. I thought um, there's just a lot of different things they could have done that would have been interesting. Like obviously they messed up by not paying Kimbrel and not addressing the bullpen this offseason they kind of shot themselves in the foot there but they've had some bad injury luck but like they could have i think moved some of their guys for some really intriguing options because this farm system is depleted now and i don't know i think they're a complicated situation what do you make of all this right now so i don't honestly i don't honestly know if there's anything dombrowski could have done this deadline in terms of selling Maybe they could have moved J.D. Martinez, but I think the presence of that opt-out was always going to complicate stuff. I mean, you look at what you look at what J.D. Martinez returned the first time he got traded by the Tigers. And granted, you know, the Red Sox are not the Tigers, different front office, different evaluations, etc. Detroit really got very little for him. Because the truth of it is, for as great a hitter as he is, and he's a great hitter, he's healthy and, product- and producing, he's one of probably the 15 best hitters in baseball. He's a terrible defender, and this season has been certainly not as good as, as seasons prior. And again, you have that opt-out hanging over everything. Um, and I do think it's probably more likely than not that he does take it just because he has put together um, a few really good years in Boston by a few, I mean, too. So, and then when beyond JD Martinez, what was, you know, what were the Red Sox really going to be able to move? Rick Porcello was their only pending free agent. He's had a horrible season and is going to be lucky to get even a two year deal this winter. And then the rest was kind of a, a bunch of filler like Mitch Moreland or Brock Holt or, you know, kind of end-of-the-bench guys, platoon guys, dudes who aren't really going to make any kind of difference to Boston's farm system. And you're right, the farm system is, it's not the worst in baseball. It's got some intriguing guys way, way down there in, like, the, in like the low A. And, it's just depleted. Like, they, they it's had depleted. to give up yeah, a lot to get the guys they have now. Yeah, and they, they gave up a lot to get Kimbrel and Sale, and then they also graduated, you know, Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers, Andrew Benintendi, Matt Barnes, you know, Christian Vasquez, a lot of that farm system produced a lot of major league caliber talent. And of course, the problem is, you know, it's really hard to keep doing that. I think I've made Mm -hmm. that point before elsewhere that what the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Astros do, where they just seem to have a top 10 farm system every single year, despite the fact that they're also, you know, they're not, they're not hoovering up number one picks. That's the exception. That ain't the rule. The rule is closer to what a team like Boston is, where you kind of go through, you go boom and bust periods. But regardless of all of that, I didn't really see how Boston could, you know, do enough or anything of the sort during the deadline kind of to make up for that. I think if, I think if, and this is, this obviously would have involved an alternate universe where I think if Chris Sale had come into this season not on that extension maybe, 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 maybe. But I think more likely than not, you were probably going to see Dombrowski and, and the Red Sox decide to run it back and try one more time. And I think at the end of the day, that's really the only option they, they have. I don't, 
like you're right. I don't think a full teardown is in order. I don't think the Red Sox are one of those teams that needs to do a full teardown. I don't. I don't think really any no. team needs to do a full teardown. Especially, but especially John not Henry a team that can own team and with the money that printing and everything else. Yes, it, that would be right. ridiculous. Yeah, they, it would be ridiculous. And the truth is, there's no, there's like the the players they would have to move in order to get the prospects necessary to make that kind of thing make sense. That would make sense. You know, you trading Xander Bogarts and Raphael Devers is self-defeating. You know, right. you're very unlikely to get the prospects. You're very unlikely to get prospects back that are going to be any better than those guys at any point in the future. You know, Raphael Devers is 22 years old. He's he is the kind of guy you want to get in those trades, not the kind of guy right. you trade away. Um, the big question, I guess, is, you know, and, and I think if Chris Sale actually had blown out his elbow as opposed to just, you know, whatever this is, inflammation or whatever this ends up being. Because he did avoid Tommy John, right? Like, we're sure he, he's not going to have to do it. I don't think it can be, I don't think you can ever say 100%. That's probably true of every pitcher, but it does seem like the worst case scenario has been avoided for now. And obviously we'll know more in six weeks time or whatever, when he gets reevaluated and we'll see if the play, if the PRP treatment they gave him, you know, makes a difference or not. But regardless, you know, assuming sale is fine and assuming he gets, he gets a clean bill of health and everything's good to go for next season. Um, I, I do think Boston just kind of has to try to run it back with that same core because I don't know if they have a choice. I think the calculus changes a bit if Sale's elbow is, is dog meat. And then I think you start to entertain the very real questions about whether or not you trade Mookie Betts. But I also really struggle to see kind of how that... I, I mean, granted, like, we've done this kind of song and dance before as to, like, trading the superstar. We, know we, all, we all entertain the questions of would the Angels ever trade Mike Trout because, you know, they're not, they, they're just, they don't win with him. So you might as well just, you know, get an enormous surplus of product. The problem is I just don't think, and, and I'm willing to, I'm willing to hear arguments otherwise, but I don't think teams really operate in that same vein of like, let's give up four to five prospects, super prospects for the one superstar guy. It's happened. I mean, it's funny because the last time it happened, as far as I can really, you know, the last time this has really happened, or a team has given up big prospects for a big, like, you know, top 25 player is the Red Sox when they traded for Chris Sale. Mm-hmm. You know, that was Yon Moncada and Michael Kopech. That's what I was thinking, and, yeah. And uh, I mean, that was kind of rocky other... for a little bit. And that was, and that was, that was certainly not a, a surefire win. And I think regardless of what happens to Sale going forward, I think just the fact that he helped them win a World Series makes that trade a win for, yeah. for Dombrowski and the Red Sox. I mean, you know, Yon Moncada could go on, to, go on to have an amazing career, and he probably will, and he's because he's a very good player. But he but, still may not get you know, that ring. Right, and, you know, the whole thing flags fly forever. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, at the end of the day, was kind of an old-school trade, you know, the kind of prospects mm-hmm. for a superstar. You don't really see – I don't feel like you really see that anymore. And, again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm forgetting something that's happened in the last couple winters, but I no, think it's just general managers – No, afford them. They're just so right, scared I, about moving any of these top guys that and I and think they're that, just so in love with team control. And like that, I just always go back to that Blue Jays tweet from a couple weeks ago where it's like the uh, Ross Shapiro was talking about like, well, yeah, we the got 42 like years of team control. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh my God, what? And I, and I think you've hit on kind of the reason why I wouldn't expect to see a Mookie Betts trade really make sense for anybody mm-hmm. because general managers are so risk averse now. Right. And they don't Even want to give up idiotic. the big Like, you should trade for Mookie Betts if he's available. I mean, you would think so, but I, I, I have a hard time seeing, especially because then you look at, okay, who needs Mookie Betts? Or who would... Who Everybody. Makes the most, 
okay, but who makes the most sense from rookie bets? A third of the league is already out in that in that equation because a third of the league is not going to win, is not even going to be contending next year. More, you got to, especially because then you have to factor in you have one year of control left on Mookie Betts before he goes and gets a three hundred fifty million dollar contract from whichever team is smart enough to give it to him. Mm-hmm. So realistically, that's already going to lower even further what you're going to get back because every team is going to come back to you with the exact same you know counter. We only have him for a year. You know what? Do, what do we want to give unless up? Unless you're in a big market and you're in a position where you can resign him, and it seems realistic to resign him. But I do think that real, more, real, more realistically than not, he is going to hit the market because he should hit the market because he should see what the best offer he can get is. You know, I, I yeah. really doubt he's going to sign a, an extension in season. And maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he so goes you think to, he's gone? to another place. Not necessarily. I just think, I just think he is going to find out exactly what he's worth because he is going to be far and away the best player to hit free agency the winter he does. Um, and you can make. I mean, I haven't run any kind of numbers, but I think you can easily make a comparison that, like, you know, as you've already seen with the, you know, winning an MVP and the stats he's put up and all that other fun stuff, he's one of the 10 best players in baseball, you know? This is... Yeah, it's, and that's it's not going to change permit. anytime soon. It's not, unless it gets hurt. But I think right. regardless, if, if the Red Sox did want to trade Mookie Betts, and I don't think they will and I don't think they should, the list of teams who's going to be interested in him is going to be contenders, and a lot of those contenders aren't want to, going to want to give anything serious up for a player who they only have a year of team control over. I know that sounds, you know, stupid. The idea that teams could look at Mookie Betts and go, eh, but I do think that is a reality of, you know, that's just how the game is now. And I think it's just important to recognize that teams are too risk averse to do that kind of thing. And you also look at like, you know, what are the, I mean, teams if you're the out there that do this? If you're, I think even the White Sox, you do this. I think if you're... But the thing is, like, if the White Sox weren't willing to give the money to Bryce Harper and Manny Machado this offseason, and all it cost them was money, I have an even harder time believing they're going to give up prospects for a guy they won't even have beyond beyond 2020. Because I really don't think there's any chance Mookie Betts re-signs with the White Sox because they're not going to they're not going to pony up 350 right. million dollars. And that's kind of the thing. There are approximately what five to ten teams that could put up that kind of money or that would be willing to maybe and how many of them are actually going to do it i know i know the old saying is it only takes one team but i think you saw obviously with with harper and machado this winter it takes a long time for that one team to show up in this day and age so i just i don't see kind of the you know the quote-unquote small market slash although the white Sox are certainly not a small market team but kind of more the mid payroll team. I don't see them doing it because their chances of re-signing bets are effectively zero. I think it would have to be a team like Philadelphia. It would have to be a team like the Dodgers. It would have to be a team like the Dodgers. Don't do that though. Like that's how they're doing it. Is they like Stan Kasten has made it a point where like they don't like paying guys. Like that's not and that's, what and that's the Dodgers the ever going to do. The team that's paying the willing to pay guys is the Red Sox. Right. That's really it. They're the only one. <laughs> So this is this is just a scenario where it's like, yeah. I think, and this just kind of leads me all the way back around to, if your only kind of non, um, if your only scenario next year in terms of like, quote unquote, like a soft rebuild is trading bets and maybe trading, you know, maybe seeing who's out, who is interested in like David Price or, you know, some of the other more high priced veterans. I just don't see how that comes together, which kind of, again, just leads me to the point of, I don't think the Red Sox have any choice but to try again. And I, I look, there are yeah, a lot of which is not a bad thing. It's not like this team, this roster, no, is like doomed next year. They can make it. They can tweak this, this little bit and be right back in it. This isn't the Phillies at the end of their run. This isn't mm-hmm. you know, this isn't that kind of scenario where this team is on its last legs. 
I read, I remember Alex Bayer from the Boston Globe did a piece kind of not quite comparing, contrasting, but just making the note that like, there's an eerie feeling of similarity, I think, between the Red Sox, the current Red Sox and the way the Royals fell apart um, after their World Series, mm. which is predicated of, I think the easy comparison there is the Royals farm system produced all these all-star caliber talents all at the same time. And they all came together and helped them win a championship alongside these kind of go for it. Now trades, you know, the Royals had Ben Zobris and Johnny Cueto and the Red Sox had uh, Chris Sale and Craig Kimbrell and signed JD Martinez. But I think the difference here is that Kansas city was never going to be able to keep that going because Kansas city was never going to dedicate the money necessary to keep right. that going. And I think, too, that there's a big difference, I assume, between the way Kansas City's front office worked back then and the way Boston's does now. I think Kansas City has long had a reputation for being kind of one of the more uh, old school front offices in terms of, you know, the way they evaluate players, and the way they develop. I mean, obviously, the, the, the good I think the correct comparison is that Kansas City's farm system just stopped producing. And I think that's a real concern for Boston going forward. But like you said, it's like this is not this is not a team that's like got a that's loaded with bad players and just has no hope. They have bets. Bogarts, Benintendi, Devers, uh, if Sale is healthy, Sale, Price, you know, they have, um, you know, there are there is a core there that is, they're going to have two of the top, like, six players by wins above replacement in the American League this year at the end of the season, Endeavors and Bogarts. You can't, and then Betts will be up, Betts will be somewhere in the top ten, too, I imagine. You can't tell me that that's a core that can't run it back next year and do better. You know, especially when you consider that a lot of the problems they ran into were just pitching. They just needed more and better pitching. Which you can address um, this this offseason, especially the bullpen. You, the bullpen's the easiest thing to address of any contender. You would say, I mean, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, Dave Dombrowski, who's never shown any ability to put together a bullpen, except for True. when he traded for literally one of the three best closers in baseball. But yeah, I, your point still stands. You can address that in the offseason. You can fix that. You just need to look back. I think the important thing for the Red Sox, and I think the tough thing for the Red Sox, is going to be what went wrong in terms of our player evaluation. You know, what went wrong in terms of how do we get here? You know, how did we how did we end up going from a 108 win team to one that is like, you know, struggle to finish above 500 and is going to be 20 games, you know, finish 20 games out in the division and, you know, 10 games out of a playoff spot or whatever it ends up being. You know, how do you fix that? And I think I don't know because I don't know. I certainly don't know, you know, what it is that went wrong for the Red Sox just purely internally. Um, I do wonder if there is maybe some kind of divide in that front office. I know that, you know, Dombrowski, his kind of close lieutenants are um, Tony La Russa and Allard Baird, who are more like, or at least I used to be Baird. Baird actually may not be there anymore. Uh, Frank Wren, I think, is the one I'm thinking of, the former Braves GM. Yes, he's there, um, I, right? Who are, who are, again, like Dombrowski, they're old school GM types. You know, they are mm. not necessarily the kind of new school analytics driven, data driven. Certainly that stuff is important to them and certainly you know, Boston's R and D department and, you know, their analytics department is, you know, one of the best in baseball, I would imagine, given a team that, you know, spends as much money as they do. But regardless, you know, maybe there is a little bit of a divide there. Maybe the old school types in the front office are not really in full agreement with, you know, everybody else. But I, I think it's that it's gonna be a really interesting off season for the Red Sox, especially if Sale ends up, you know, if this ends up being a bigger deal for him. And obviously if the, if it is, that changes the entire calculus of how that team operates going forward. But assuming he's healthy, I think I think you just have to try to run it back. And then, you know, you got your last year with Mookie and then, you know, either you re sign him or you don't or you figure something out. But I just think there's no real way for them to take the roster as it currently exists 
and make it and just do anything other than try again um, with that same group. Because like you said, it's, it's a good group. It's a group that can win. It's a group that did win. You know, there's no reason not to give it another shot, you know, because the other, what's the other option? Tear it down. What good is that? You know, that's probably not going to get you anywhere anyway. I would agree. Let's change gears to the Kansas City Royals, the team we've talked about a little bit. But there's a good piece in Fangraphs this week that kind of highlights, like, I don't know if a lot of people realize who Jorge Solar was even just a couple of years ago um, and how he was seen and um, coming up the pipeline and everything else. Like, he was tied to the hip with Javier Baez, and we've seen how that's unfolded for Baez in Chicago. But Solar with injuries and other stuff, like, he... It's interesting because those were their two building blocks from years ago in Chicago, and Solar was obviously moved. Um, but Solar actually got off to a little bit of a better start in Chicago, but then Baez picked up later on. Um, obviously a great defensive player and all this other stuff and um, got his plate discipline under control and everything and became an MVP-type player. That has not happened with Solar until this year where he has really broken out and he has a 131 WRC plus he 2.4 war 35 dingers for him um tied with Acuna right now for uh most homers uh fifth most homers in baseball um he's gonna break the franchise record for dingers which is somehow a Mike Moustakis record of 38 which is unbelievable to me when I think about all the different Kansas city Royals over the years. Like, would you ever guess Moustakis has the most home runs for them in a season? How is that possible? It's possible. If only because the list before him is just like really desperately, pathetically sad. I think Steve Balboni was number one before him. Really? What was Hosmer's high? Am I crazy for thinking he ever even came close? Maybe. Oh my God. He was supposed to, um, if only because, you know, Eric Hosmer. Um, but, in terms of, I'm just I'm just looking it up now because I am just curious because the the Royals home run record was one of those things where it's like it's just a constant joke that it's like that guy Carlos Beltran was that there. was another one who I was thinking about yeah yeah but um, in terms of well in terms of career it's it's George Brett which is, yeah that's not surprising and makes perfect sense Mike Sweeney but, yeah oh, Mike Sweeney professional hitter mm-hmm. um, but yeah I. This was always the funny thing about the Royals is that for all for all the the players they they developed, it just never, you know, especially the, that especially that group that just never. Yeah, Steve Balboni. Steve Balboni was the franchise leader in single season home runs at thirty six. That's wild. Before before uh, Mustakis broke the record. You know what's even funnier? Um, oh no, Mustakis left hand. I read that wrong. Never mind. But yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, the Solaire thing isn't particularly surprising in so far as it's a, like one, we've always known that he's had ridiculous raw power. I mean, you look, you just look at him. He's built like an NFL linebacker. Um, and he was a super highly touted amateur out of Cuba. And, you know, every scout has always said just power for days. You know, the trick for him has always been pitch recognition, plate discipline, all that stuff that takes a long time to develop. And, you know, the combination I think to have raw power and the rabbit ball, um, you know, that's how you get the 35 home runs if you're a guy like Jorge Soler. So, you know, I haven't, I haven't studied his season in depth necessarily. I would imagine that part of it is just better pitch recognition, just, you know, swinging it less. Cause you know, his whole thing was, he was just one of those, like, like, like Javi Baez, just one of those peak bad ball hitters, you know, where 
you could fool him with, with braking stuff and off-speed stuff outside, but if he managed to connect, he was still going to drive it a long way because he's freakishly strong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just take a quick look. I'm just taking a quick look at his fangrass page. Like, his swinging strike rate is down. His contact rates are all up, which is great. You know, his swing and his swing rate's roughly the same. He's just making more contact and swinging and missing less, which is, you know, pretty much, you know, a big ingredient to, you know, hitting 35 home runs. Um, his hard hit rate is up. He's hitting, he's hitting fewer ground balls, putting the ball in the air more. That's always good. So I'm not surprised this has kind of been the case because that's always a dude where if you are able to put the ball in the, you, sorry, I better said he's a dude where if he were able to put the ball in the air with consistency and make contact with consistency. And a lot of the probably too is just consistent playing time. Because I think, you know, the Cubs, he was pretty much always a part-time player. He never really developed the way they wanted him to. And he also had a lot of injuries to deal with. You know, the Royals can just afford to just throw him out there and be like, yeah, just play play the whole season. Who cares? You know, we're not going anywhere. It's so, the Lucas Giolito thing all over again. Kind of, yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for this idea. And I think there's the idea of like the post-hype prospect for a guy where there's so much expected so quickly and they invariably struggle because that's what prospects do. Not every prospect gets it right right away. You know, for every, you know, for every Fernando Tatis Jr. comes up and just immediately rakes, you know, there's 10 other guys who don't do that despite having pedigrees and, and uh, prospect grades that are as good, if not better. Well, I guess maybe not better. Tatis is one of the five best prospects in baseball this winter, but regardless, and I think you kind of saw that with Solaire. It's like sometimes it just takes these guys time to develop. And sometimes it takes the right situation, like a place in Kansas City where they just kind of, you know, and I, I don't know if they did anything with regards to like, um, with regards to changing his, you know, changing any swing mechanics, any approach, anything like that. As I have, you know, I haven't talked to the Royals about that. But, you know, it's not necessarily all that surprising if you give a guy an opportunity and just give him a long leash and just kind of let him figure things out and, you know, obviously help him too you know, that the guy with the incredible raw talent of a Jorge Soler is just going to end up doing something like this. So I think what, what is, what's interesting to me is because Soler is not quite a, he's not a one dimensional hitter, but he's kind of, he's pretty much a power guy and not a whole lot else. He's not a good defender. He doesn't really offer you much of anything in the way of speed. He's only got one stolen base all year. Um, you know, the power he has, he's still only walking in like, literally he's a, he has the exact same walk rate this year as he did last. You know, he's not a guy who draws walks. He still strikes out a fair amount. You know, it's really just power, 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 power. And I wonder how valuable that can be an all power kind of no glove, no speed, limited on base, you know, profile. How, how valuable that can even be in a, in a, in the rabbit ball year when everyone is throwing for power or hitting for power rather, you know, like, when power is a little devalued because everybody's doing it, how much value does a Jorge Soler have? And I know he's, you know, by wins of a replacement, he's having a, he's having a good season. I just wonder, you know, if, if next year comes around or, you know, whenever or we get a different ball and some of those home runs turn into warning track outs, what else is Jorge Soler offering you? And so I'm, I'm, that's, that's going to be an interesting thing to track, not just with him, but with other guys who've seen these big, huge power spikes over the course of the season as to what happens if, you know, if the ball changes or if something else changes with regards to offense going forward. Yeah. I mean, these are the same kind of questions that we're thinking with Joey Gallo, right? Where Joey Gallo is probably just a better version of this, where um, I think it was Michael Bauman wrote about this on the ringer a couple months ago because he was having an MVP type season in the AL and 
you look at it, you're like, this is if this is all he can do, he can get a little bit more balls in play, stuff like that. But how valuable are guys like this? Is there a what is what does that ceiling look like for these kind of guys now? Um, And I don't know. I think Solar is the most recent example, and we'll we'll have to see. Um, but either way, I think it's it's a cool story that he's finally figured it out, at least to some extent, because um, he's had a rough go of it over the last couple of years. And just being healthy and good, it, uh, it's a good thing. Um, last thing, and then we'll wrap up here. Bryce Harper, my man, Bryce Harper. He uh, He's good at baseball, it turns out, folks. And uh, since July 31st, he has a WRC plus of 153. Um, eight dingers. He is hitting for power again. It's hitting some walk-off grand slams. Like Bryce Harper, uh, it turns out, John, maybe better than Nick Markakis in right field. I, for one, I'm shocked. I, I can't believe it. I, uh, I'm stunned, folks. Um, it, it turns out Bryce Harper still pretty good. Yeah, and you know it's funny for for as much kind of whinging as there may have been about you know, Harper's having a bad season. Harper's not being and not worth the money. The little tear he's been on lately, you know, if he kind of, if he's able to keep that up or even just, you know, stay productive through the end of the season, this year's going to look pretty good. Like, you know, right now he's got a 120 OPS plus, uh, 26 home runs. He's got 90 RBI, which I know not really a thing. Two and a half wins above replacement. Okay. That's, those aren't MVP numbers, but they're perfectly good. They're helpful. Yep. They are they are useful numbers. Is it what the Phillies thought they were going to get when they when gave him a three hundred thirty million dollar contract? No. Is it a total disaster and a you know complete you know complete failure on their part and a giant overpay? And no, that's not it either. It's a good season. If anything, it's just a reflection of how hard it is to be a good baseball player. I think. Um, unfortunately, I don't think this season is going to quiet any of those questions or issues about whether or not Bryce Harper is you know truly kind of you know the Messiah, so to speak. I mean, part of the problem there is that it's Mike Trout, and you know everyone's going to look bad compared to Mike Trout. I think the one thing you do that wonder about with Harper is um, the strikeouts. He has a lot of swing and miss in his game, and he that's always been a thing, but it seems to be getting more and more pronounced of late. Uh, the last two seasons, like last season, he finished with 169 strikeouts, which is a lot. This year, he's leading the National League with 145, so he's on. He's going to blow past that that number you know, despite actually having a lower strikeout percentage uh, than last year, which is kind of interesting. But, you know, you look at his, you look at his, he's swinging and missing more. He's making less contact, uh, particularly on outside pitches. It's a little, and he's also walking less, which is a little concerning. So it's one of those things where it's like, you look at the profile for him and you kind of start to wonder, okay, what, this particular issue, it seems like if he can figure out this particular issue, I'm not saying he just never strikes out. He's always going to be a guy who strikes out. But the strikeout rate has been going, has been a problem for him. Actually, I, I misspoke earlier. His strikeout rate is higher this year than last. I was looking at, uh, looking yep. at, the, wrong, looking at the wrong stat. But that 26.7% of his, of his plate appearances are strikeouts right now. That is enormous. That is a lot of strikeouts. You know, you can't really be a successful hitter when you're striking out in almost in over a quarter of your plate appearances, there's just no real way for you to do that. Like among all qualified hitters, he currently ranks 13th, the 13th highest strikeout rate in baseball. He's right there with Randall Grichuk. And granted, like 
Harper makes up for that because of these guys, of every player with a with a strikeout rate of uh, 20%, 26% or more, he has the best walk rate by a mile. I think Luke Voigt's the only other guy there with him. But it, it is a little concerning to see that, and I think it's also concerning when you look at Harper's profile that he's not really producing against uh, he, he's not really producing that much against like what you know expect him to be like a, just a murderous fastball hitter. And he's been good, but he's not been as good as previous years. And I, I just wonder. I know Mike Petriello at MLB.com wrote a whole big thing about how pitchers are attacking Harper and that they're kind of just you know they're you know the, the particular pitch usage. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I, I encourage anyone who's listening to go to go check that out. I do wonder if this is something where, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's needs to be some change in his approach, some change in, in how he's operating with regards to, you know, what he's looking for, because the strikeout stuff really is kind of untenable. And I think that's probably the big, I mean, I know he's also run into issues previously with the shift. I know that was a big part of, um, you know, what he has struggled with in the past. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if that's, you know, something where, I mean, obviously the shift isn't going away anytime soon. There's, he is a player who is still going to get shifted on a regular basis. I mean, you just look at the numbers now, he's seeing a shift in 63% of his plate appearances. And I'm not really sure how you, how you, how you as Bryce Harper kind of fix that because you can't really do anything about that. But, you know, and then you look at the production with the shift, it's killing him. So I think the strikeouts in the shift, maybe that's a change in approach. But the the crazy thing still to me is that despite all that, despite those kind of ominous numbers, he's still producing, putting together a season that honestly is pretty good. It's not an MVP season. It's not a $330 million season, but it's still pretty good. So you're saying ban the shift to save Bryce Harper. That's what we got to do. I think Rob Manfred, I think Rob Manfred would agree with me to ban the shift, but mm-hmm. unfortunately for him, that'll ever happen? ban the shift. No, I don't think so. No, I don't either. Um, yeah. All right. John, is there anything that we need to read from you on SI.com this week? Um, we have, as a as a site, as a group of writers, a hopelessness index coming out that is just going to okay. chart like the... Uh, basically, we picked, I think, 12 or 14 teams, I can't remember, and basically just ranked them by how hopeless are they? And, you know, when when will better times be ahead for these particular rebuilding, tanking, losing, whatever you want to call them, teams? So that's something that's coming out this week. At um, some point next week, I'll have something on Trout, looking at his kind of ranking his best seasons because he's amid, amazingly enough, like for all the for all the great years he's already had, he is amid the best season of his entire career right now. So we'll be doing something on that, um, and then eventually at some point, yeah, we gotta start gotta start getting ready for the playoffs. That is shockingly only five weeks away, I think, at this point before the postseason starts. The month of August has really flown by. What is uh What is your gut telling you about how the who the two World Series teams are going to be? What do you think? I I think it's going to be a Dodgers Astros rematch. Mm. I just I feel I feel good about those two teams. I think they're I think they're the two best teams in baseball at the moment. So I know the Yankees uh, have a better record, but uh, I like I like Astros Dodgers. We didn't talk about Jose Ramirez getting his stuff back and Tito. We Francona. didn't. No. Well, the like, the funny thing bad. about Jose Ramirez, the funny thing about Jose Ramirez is nobody knows how he got good, and then nobody knows why he's bad, <laughs> and now nobody knows why he's good again. Jose right. Ramirez just defies any and all like because he was god awful. I don't think people realize just how bad he was for the first couple months of this season. Like unbelievably, unfathomably bad for someone as good as Jose Ramirez was a season ago. 
and now he's suddenly really good again. It's very funny. Oh my God. Baseball's weird. John Taylor, thank you so much. Talk to you soon, man. My pleasure, dude. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. Thank you to uh, today's guests. Thank you to Panko Chicken, our presenting sponsor. Um, if you love today's episode and you would like to help the show continue to grow and get bigger, um, go and leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd really appreciate it. You can also listen on Google Play. If you're an Android person, you can go to chasethomaspodcast.com where you can get access to all my previous episodes, all my articles, and all that good stuff. Um, you can listen on Spotify. So the Chase Thomas podcast is there. Um, wherever you're looking for a podcast, the Chase Thomas podcast is there. I promise. Follow me on Twitter at Chase double underscore Thomas. Uh, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas writer. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Chase double underscore Thomas. Just I'm all over the place, but, um, I just appreciate you listening and more episodes to come. So thank you as always, for your support, and I hope you listen again very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.